please open your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, Pam, have you, Kim, have you handed out the, the, uh, the, the passages? There's a, there's a, okay, I, I'd really like you guys to have the text with you today. Every time we go through the text, I'd really love it. If you could always bring your Bibles, um, phone, second choice. I always like the real thing of the paper, but you guys are, all you young kids with all your new technologies. <laughs> but I, I would love it, really would, would just ask you to always be ready to have the word in front of you. I mean, there's several reasons for that. Most importantly, you want to look at the Bible to see that what I'm preaching to you is in the Bible or from the Bible or in keeping with the Bible. Um, and of course, it, it helps, especially when we don't have PowerPoint, when we're not out, you know, with a... It, um, with screens. It helps you to follow along with the message. So 1 Corinthians 15, today we're going to look at um, verses 35 through 49. I will read those and then we will pray. This is the word of God. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For the stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a life living being. The last Adam became a life giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are also those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 
all scripture is God breathed. But I want to say that this is incredibly glorious. God is revealing secrets and mysteries to us in this passage that are barely fathomable to us. But they are real. They are going to take place. The Corinthians struggled to believe this. As we've talked about before, they were raised in a culture rampant with Epicureanism. The idea that this is all there is. Matter is all there is. We are raised in that same type of environment increasingly in Western civilizations. When verse 35 comes to Paul, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Paul is not answering the question of an interested, curious, respectful seeker. He's dealing with a skeptic, a denier. The person is essentially saying, Paul, the body decomposes and it's scattered to the universe. <laughs> a person's arm turns to dust in the ground and it's blown away. We know today that even science confirms this. Molecules and our elemental properties might even become part of the dirt that fortifies a flower or makes up the cellular structure of other living things. In this backdrop, though not knowing all that science, they knew enough to say, how can I be raised if part of me goes into a stream and another part of me goes into a, a mountain or gets burned up and scattered in the wind? How's that going to happen? We see what the world does. And Paul says, you foolish person, you don't understand what you are talking about. This isn't just a foolish person who is confused. It's a foolish person, according to the Old Testament picture of a foolish person. This has allusions to the proverbial fool, where the fool is one who does not take God into account. The fool, the psalmist says, says in his heart, there is no God. And the fool in Proverbs lives without acknowledging a creator, a sovereign, a Lord. Paul says, you're a fool to live that way. If we know anything from the very beginning of our reason process, it's that nothing comes from nothing. Romans 1 tells us that everyone is without excuse for God's invisible qualities. His divine nature and his eternal power can be seen by what is made. And we live in a world that denies that implicitly, if not explicitly. Paul says such blindness is the epitome of the fool and the foundation of all foolishness. There's no God. We're here by chance. So Paul moves to the created order that God has created, the way things have happened already, to answer some of these objections. And he assigns, as he does so, all authority to God. We're going to walk through this text as Paul answers this question. How can there be a resurrection? We're going to ask God for help. Would you do that with me right now as we try to walk with Paul through his answers given to him by the Holy Spirit? 
Lord, I am, and I know many of my brothers and sisters are here, deeply affected by an implicit worldview so much like the Epicureanism of the Greeks' day. Lord, we're told, mainly through silence, that there is no God. That we came here through random mutations, natural selection, unguided, no need for a creator, no need for sovereignty. Would you please speak to us in our hearts to remind us, Lord, that you are the creator. You are the creator of the old creation. And you are the creator of the new creation. Here in our spirits and coming fully at the resurrection. Please, Lord, have mercy on us this morning. Please, Jesus, husband your bride, nourish her. Cleanse her, wash her, because you cherish her. Though we don't deserve that, that is what your heart is. I pray for mercy upon me for my sins and my weaknesses in preparation. That you would bless your people despite me or through me. However, bless your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In answering the question, how in the world does the resurrection actually happen? Give me one moment here. Paul is going to proceed through a few analogies, and then he's going to give just a very frank one-on-one -on -one about what the resurrection is and what it isn't compared to our lives now. So first he starts with some analogies, and that's what we'll go over, and then he ends with, here's the foundational differences between what we were and what we will be, and we'll go over that as well. So first the analogies. The first analogy he brings is the seed analogy. He says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So he's saying, look at what happens in the natural world, you who say that there can be no resurrection. Haven't you ever looked at a seed? Don't you understand the message that God is trying to tell you through the metaphor of every plant life in this world? The seed goes into the ground. It must give up being a seed. It must let go of its old form, its old life, if it's going to be what it was always meant to be. In fact, that's not only what must be done to a seed, but if you put the seed in the ground and you water it as you should, it absolutely must happen, this transformation. In other words, not do you have to put the seed in the ground to make it happen. If you do put the seed in the ground, absolutely stunningly different living form must result from something you would never have guessed in its form would happen. Paul says in 37, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. The seed, by how it appears, gives no indication of what it's going to be. But what it's going to be is already inside that seed in conception, in potential. That seed was never meant to stay just a seed. It was always meant to die to its old life and to take on a much more glorious form. And, and if you all remember, if we had a PowerPoint projector here, we'd look at the mustard seed. I, you know, I went online this week to think about potential pictures. The mustard seed is tiny, just as the Bible says. It's like the head of a, of a pin. 
The tree it grows is so much bigger than that tree. At least it can be, the pictures I've seen. No one who didn't know anything about this world, who picked up a speck of dust like a mustard seed, would think to themselves, oh, it's going to become something like that. I mean, turn around and look at that tree right there, this beautiful golden thing. If a being from another planet who had no concept of what life was like on our planet picked up a tiny speck and you said to him, it's going to turn into that, he would have no clue. And so Paul says, this is exactly what we're dealing with, with the resurrection. In, in analogy, God gives it, verse 38, he says, a body as he has chosen. This all happens because God has chosen what each form of seed will take. God is sovereign, Paul says. He is active. He is intentional. He is purposeful in life. Not only does life not just happen randomly and accidentally, it is chosen to be exactly what it is by God's sovereign plan and God's sovereign command. Now Paul appeals to variation in body and form according to function. So Paul's about to say, listen, things have different forms according to the purposes that they're made for, according to the spheres in which they live. They have different forms. So he says, each kind of seed has its own body, verse 38. Now Paul is going to give some illustrations here. Verse 39, not all flesh is the same. There's humans, there's animals, there's birds, there's fish, there's things on heaven, stars, planets, there's mountains, streams, earthly bodies. Heavenly bodies have one kind of splendor or glory or, or image. Things on earth have another kind. This isn't complicated, but understanding what he means when he says there's one kind of glory and another kind of glory, it, this is needed to understand this text. Think back to what we've established about God's glory. God's glory is the as Piper says, the going public of his inner nature, his inner character, his invisible qualities become visible and intimate what he is. Think of fish gills and fish fins visible communicate to us something about the reality of its life as a water creature. The bear claws make visible to us the reality of its life as a great, powerful predator. The warm rays of the sun, they make understandable to us the reality of its role as the provider of light and heat for living things. So Paul says, things have their glory. They have their form according to what God has called them to do and be. Your form right now as you live, is according to the life that you're called to experience on this earth. And part of that life is the fallen nature of Adam and the curse of Adam. And so our form and our destiny in the natural world adheres to that reality of the curse, decomposition, weakness. 
our form intimates, communicates our function. Verse 42, Paul says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, what is placed in the ground is perishable because that is our inheritance in this world. The wages of sin is death. And so we inherit death. We go into the ground. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown, again, sown. Think of the seed being brought into the ground. It is raised a spiritual body instead of a natural body. So I want to go through each of these comparisons and talk a little bit about each one. Paul says, what is sown, what is placed in the ground at death is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Perishable is the same or related to the same Greek cognate word of, as corruption. It's the same word Paul uses for when he uses the, the phrase, our bondage to decay in Romans 8. In Psalm 16, David is speaking of the Messiah. And he says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. In Acts 2, Peter uses this illustration to say, listen, we know where David's buried. His body decayed in the ground. So the Holy One that God did not let see decay is Jesus Christ, whom he rescued from the tomb. This is the word perishable, decay. Adam was to return to dust, to decay back into dust, because he came from dust. Instead of ascending into God's dimension for him, he had been through the curse commanded by God to return to perishability, to corruption, to decay. Paul says, we'll be raised imperishable. It's naturally the opposite of perishable. It's the undoing, the, 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 the reversing of decay and death. And specifically in this passage, it's, it's oriented around the physical and bodily realm. We will be imperishable in our physical bodily form. Simply put, our resurrection bodies will not be susceptible to physical decay any more then our souls will be susceptible to moral sin. Our physical bodies will not be vulnerable to decay any more than our souls will be vulnerable to sin. One writer says, although it was a corruptible body that was placed in Christ's tomb, it was not given the opportunity to experience corruption. Christ's body when he went into the tomb was corruptible, but as our bodies will also, it was clothed in incorruptibility. The undoing of the fall of humanity and of creation would be fully achieved through the corruption and decay being completely overcome. The resurrection completely swallows up the broadest and deepest effects of the fall of creation in humanity. We won't be able to die. 
we won't be able to corrode. We won't be able to decay. If you came to the resurrected Jesus Christ and you shot him in the face, I don't know what would happen, but something very strange would happen. I don't know if the bullet would fall off, if it would be absorbed, if it would stop in midair. I think maybe, if I have to guess more likely, it would pass through him just as it passes through water. And, and that's getting a little bit speculative here, but, but Christ appeared to be able to move through concrete objects. He could move through walls. He could materialize and dematerialize seemingly at will so that bricks and geographical impediments meant nothing to him. So physical impediments like bullets and knives would mean nothing to him. This is what it means to be imperishable. His body was, and our bodies will be incapable of being broken down and destroyed. And that seems fantastic to you. And Paul says, so does a mustard seed turning into that seem fantastic to you. <clears throat> our bodies are sown in disorder. They're raised in glory. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, you are honored we are dishonored. And he talks a little bit about what it means to be dishonored. He says, to this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. We're cursed, but we bless. We're persecuted, and we endure it. We're slandered, and we answer with kindness. He says about his life as an apostle, his experience serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. That was Paul's experience for Jesus. And, and many throughout history have followed a Savior who was despised and afflicted and become despised and afflicted. And the climax of this dishonor is death. Nature itself rejects us. Life itself abandons us. Paul says that is not what our inheritance will be in the resurrection. Christ and with him all his people who belong to him will be valued without qualification. Because he is glorious, those who are in him will share something of his glory. It will not be our own as if we had our own glory, but because of Jesus, we will have a glory, a kind of radiance that we cannot conceive of now. Paul says in another place that we'll reign with Christ, that we'll judge angels, we're told, he tell, Jesus told the disciples that they would sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. These passages point to a majesty and a dignity and an honor that will be the antithesis of dishonor and the worst ways that the persecuted church has been treated through the ages, which I know we know so little about. 
There's also no doubt that there's an element of physicality to this. There's something of our physical form, as form follows function, that will connect to and communicate our great honor and our great majesty in Christ. When Paul saw the resurrected Christ, a light flashed all around him. He encountered the light of Christ so brightly, it was brighter than the sun, and it blinded his unresurrected mortal eyes that couldn't handle the light of the resurrected Christ. We might think similarly of John's vision of Christ in Revelation, when he sees Jesus' face shining like the sun, falling down as if dead. Form follows function. The form of Christ's physical manifestation followed the function of his infinite majesty. So we will taste something of that. Paul says that we're sown in weakness, but we're raised in power. Now, this is a little bit bittersweet because on this earth, those of us who know weakness so often know God's power through that weakness. And the idea of abandoning that weakness while we'd like to be done with some suffering, we also don't want to be done with the enjoyment of God's glory that we experience in that suffering. But Paul says there's a weakness in us now that God's power works through. And in the future, God's power will not have to work through it to still be God's power. Paul's persecutions in his life on earth, and, and perhaps even his physical limita limitations, there's some clues that Paul had some significant health issues. These were occasions that Paul himself and others who were around him could experience and know God's power in the midst of that weakness to say, man, there's, there's no way this could happen with a weak person like you. You've got a speech impediment. You can't see anymore. Look what God's done through your life. It can only be God. People would see this old, weak, hated, persecuted, imprisoned man. 2,000 years, millions of people have been reading his words every day, every week. On this side of the resurrection, it's through weak things that God shames the wise. But in the resurrection to come, there will be no need for this kind of weakness to make clear that God is at work. There will be no sin or unbelief to doubt. Everything is sourced in God and for his glory. For we will walk not just by faith, but by sight. Our, our ability to depend on ourselves and to sin by worshiping our own beauty, as Satan perhaps did, it will be destroyed so that we can be strong, we can be powerful without risking self-worship, being able to give all the glory to God for the beauty and the power and the strength that we will have in our body, mind, and soul. We, we see little tastes of this now in sort of the reversal. My dad was once an Olympic rower. He was a graduate of an Ivy League school. He was strong as an ox. He was handsome, and he was full of great mental acuity and creative power. That's what he was in his late 20s, early 30s. When I last saw my dad, he was twisted up in bed, unable to walk, 
His hair looked like how we might think Howard Hughes' hair looked like. Looked like an old horse's gray mane. I think his teeth were mostly all gone. He had to be changed like a baby. His bed was his bathroom. He could only moan his thoughts occasionally. Whatever they were, by the end, I had no idea what they were. That is what weakness had done to him, to this beautiful 26-year-old Olympian rower. And, you know, we act as if this is just how it goes. This is just the course of life, the circle of life. We domesticate death. We dress it as we should with hospice, with funerals, with memories and songs and last wills and testaments and photographs, all of which we should be grateful for. But when you watch your loved ones, as some of you guys have, shrivel away until they die, and then you realize that you can never hear their warm voice, their tender thoughts, their big hugs, you do well to think that death is a terrible enemy. And you do well to rejoice at the thought that one day it will be destroyed. I believe when I see my father again, he will be full of strength and power and he will be beautiful. It won't be the greatest thing about him. The greatest thing about him will be Jesus Christ in him, which I experienced before he died. But it will be wonderful to see him running and laughing so will it be with all of us. It's hard for some of you to look forward to what you feel like you pretty much enjoy right now. <laughs> but for those of us who are older, and for all of us who have lost loved ones, it is good news to know that we are sown in weakness, but raised in power. And Paul says, lastly, we're sown into the earth with a natural body, and we're raised with a spiritual body. This is probably the most important thing to talk about right now because this causes a lot of confusion and it has throughout history. People have taken these words, natural and spiritual, and they've imbued them with current modern definitions of them. But that's not what Paul was talking about. When he says we're sown into the earth natural bodied and we come out spiritually bodied, what's been often done with this is, is to proclaim that Christ's resurrection and our resurrection is not really concrete and physical. It's just spiritual. It's immaterial. That it's flesh and bones, the natural, and spirit and ghosts like beings that raised. This is not at all what Paul means. And this becomes clear as you think about how Paul deals with words like natural and spiritual in the Bible. James, for instance, calls natural wisdom ungodly wisdom. He calls it selfish wisdom. He calls it demonic wisdom. He doesn't mean that it's physical wisdom or concrete wisdom. He means it's given to worldliness and demonic influence. It's of the earth, the fallen world. Paul, in this very letter, calls God's wisdom spiritual wisdom. He doesn't mean that it's invisible wisdom. He means that it's wisdom that's full of truth, full of the glory and the beauty and goodness of God. Earlier, Paul calls the man without God, 
a natural man. He doesn't mean that he's a man who has flesh and bones because the believer has flesh and bones. And he calls that man a spiritual man. Paul is saying that our current physical bodies in this passage have some alignment or correspondence to the fallenness of this world, to the curse of this world, to the rebellion against God of this world. And though this is mysterious, the Bible is clear, especially in Romans 6 through 8, that our current bodies, our very natural bodies, our earthly bodies, our senses, do not cooperate very well with the Holy Spirit. Addictions to sin, they do not just occur in the mind. Our very biology is warped by sin and then enslaves us further to sin. A person addicted to alcohol or pornography or media or anything may begin with more psychological choices and desires. But over time, their very bodies, their very physiology, their very brain matter, synapses, dendrites inside their head begin to conform to their choices and desires. And their body begins to contribute to the cravings that enslave, to the pleasure-giving substances like dopamine that flow through our brain matter and reinforce addiction. I believe there are some clear insights into this into Romans 6 through 7. Listen to some of what Paul says about our current bodies. Therefore, sin is not to reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. The antecedent to its, the last proper noun is body. So it's very likely that when he says so that you obey its lusts, he's talking about your mortal body's lusts, cravings. For just as you presented the parts of your body, he says, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. See what he said there? You used to, you made a choice to present the part of your body to lawlessness and it resulted in further lawlessness. So he says, so now present your body's parts as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification or holiness. Later in chapter seven, Paul says, I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person, in his thoughts, in his affections. He loved the laws of God the law of love. But then he says in verse 23, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, the law which is in my body's parts. He is talking about physiology here. And then he says in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? When can I get out of this brain matter? Which takes my sinful choices and enslaves me to them. Get me out of this very body, he says. You don't have to have a physical addiction that's profoundly debilitating to know this. Anyone who tries to diet knows this. Anyone who tries to wake up early after a late night to serve at church knows this. Your very body 
often craves what is contrary to what you know is right. Now, I don't want to make excuses for us here. Paul in this very book, Romans 6 and 7, is establishing that through the Holy Spirit, we now have power through his grace over our bodies. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, we have a deposit now guaranteeing what is to come, the resurrection. But we have the deposit now. But don't we know this? That though we have the deposit now, we have to battle? It's a battle, it's a battle, it's a battle, it's a battle, right? Our bodies beat us down very often. They take the wheel, so to speak. And all of us, in some degree or another, are struggling to battle with our cravings that aren't conforming to God's will. That's why he says in Romans 8, 14, by the Spirit, if you put to death the deeds of the body. Or verse 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Here's was Paul's experience as a man who had seen the resurrected Christ and as a man filled with the Spirit who had seen Christ himself. Here's what, how he said he had to live. I strictly discipline my body. Other versions said, I have to beat my body. Make it my slave because it's rebelling against him again and again and again. I don't do what I want to do. The things I don't want to do, I keep doing. But Paul says, thank God, this is not the way it's always going to be. Some of you have and some of you are having to be in constant battle with your bodies. And I, I see some of you guys fight so hard, so well, and encounter resistance that's so fierce. And I just want to say two things. Number one, well, I want to say three things. Thank you for fighting. Thank you for fighting. The Lord is pleased that you struggle. The Lord is pleased that you battle. Thank you for the way that you fight. And don't give up. Number two, don't give up. God knows that the battle is fierce. He knows that your bodies rebel against you in their cravings. He knows that in your inner being, you wish to be different and not what you are. That is his work in you. He cares about that. And he won't abandon the work of his hands. He won't abandon your new man your new spirit. And he might make you learn humility, learn weakness in ways you never wanted to. He is glorifying himself through you. He is teaching you who he is and his faithfulness. And he is making you glorify himself in your weakness and in your struggle. Number three, it is going to end. It is not going to last forever. This is not going to be your inheritance forever and ever. Our resurrection bodies will be perfectly suited for the Spirit. They will be perfectly suited for the Spirit's desires and ways. There will be no talk back. There will be no competition. There will be no insurgencies that you wake up with and are stunned by and taken over by. There will be no desire 
that you will have to subdue or put to death anymore. Our bodies, our appetites, our dopamine, our physical cravings for sex or sleep or wine or sweets, whatever God creates them for now and whatever they're going to transmorph into, they will only conform to the Holy Spirit's desire and to your innermost desires to be friends with God. You will only crave and yearn for what is good. There will be no need to resist an urge or to make a phone call or to confess or to give someone your passcode. These will be the kind of conversations that will happen between you and God and only these kind of conversations about this kind of thing. Lord, I just feel like doing this right now. And God will say, that is exactly what I'm hoping that you would want to do. That's all you will be able to say to him about this. All the time, every day, every moment. God, I just want to do this. That's exactly what I was hoping you'd want to do. <laughs> Go for it. Th there will be no other negotiation. <laughs> this is why Paul concludes this flow of thought by coming back to the difference between Adam and Christ. Adam had rebelled. Christ had not. The first man, Adam, became a life-living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Adam was alive once, but he could not give you life. But Jesus gives life. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are all those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so are also those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of man, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. It's very hard to conceive of this. But we will be just like Jesus. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, the man who rebelled, the man who compromised, the man who disbelieved God, the man who judged God to not be good, the man who grabbed selfishly for the throne, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, the man who did not compromise, the man who did not grab to be the most important, but laid himself down to be the servant of all. It's very hard to conceive that we will fully and finally be like this, but we will be just like Jesus in these respects. We will love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, without any hint of imperfection or impurity in that sentence. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a time is coming, and even now has arrived, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and they will come out. Paul says, at the trumpet blast, at the shout of the Lord's command. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Into your lives, he said, let there be belief, and there was belief. And one day to your dead, decomposing bodies, he will say, rise, and they will rise. Because it's the word of his power, because he spoke and it comes to be. He commands and it stands firm. Do you know what is inside your body? What has created you? I mean, the means by which you have been created and what currently sustains you? Do you know that even science knows that it's commandments? DNA wraps itself inside every single molecule in your body. It's code. It's language. It's commandments. It's intelligence. It's purpose. If I took your DNA and I expanded it and strung it out, this is how big this book of you is. It would go from this ground to the sun and back. Your DNA molecule strung out would go from this ground to the sun and back. 600 times. Full of commands full of information to make your nose, your cells, your tissues, your proteins, your bones. It's, un it's unfathomable. Scientists are arguing about this all the time. How in the world did this, you know, Darwin thought he didn't understand anything about DNA. It wasn't discovered until the 50s. It's upended evolution. It's led to the increasing interest in intelligent design. I want to go on for hours about this, but I can't. I have a whole bunch of stuff written down I want to share with you about it, maybe next week. But I just want to say this. You came to be, and you exist right now because of words. You wouldn't be able to read them. They're not in English. They're in chemical codes, but they're words. They're commandments. It's information. It says, let Megan be Megan. Let her have brown hair and not blonde hair, unless you dye your hair, sorry. You... you It says, let Albert have green eyes and not blue eyes. I mean, and let him have eyes and optical nerves and dendrites. And, I mean, it's just, it, it's mind-boggling. Billions and billions and billions of decisions being made with intention and purpose. And your body obeys. <laughs> DNA speaks and your body obeys. 
I tried to tell my son John that God's given all of us a little piece of property to understand. He's given all of us a little corner of this idea of commandment and obedience that's at the foundation of all life and this whole reality. I said, John, I want you to use your mind, if you're willing, to make a choice right now, to lift up your arm up and down, up and down. And he does. Everybody, just make the choice right now if you're willing to lift up your arm. It's okay. You can be goofy. Just lift up your arm. Make that decision. Right? You trust me, so you'll do it. Do you know what just happened? Your invisible, immaterial, non-concrete mind of thought and will and choice commanded the physical world and made it do something. You have no idea how you did that. But your personhood, your invisible person said, arm, move up and down. And what happened to the visible physical world? It moved up and down. Do you understand that? That's a mystery, but do you understand it? I mean, that, that's what happens? You think. It's not a chemical. It's not an enzyme. It's not matter. It's a thought. It's ephemeral. It's not concrete. You think, and it happens physically into the physical world. And you do, you, we can do a lot more with the physical world with our thoughts. We can build buildings and bridges. We can heal cancer and bring food to the homeless. But you're such a tiny, tiny little part of this universe. C can you imagine what God can do with his thoughts and his commandments? If you just a human, a mere mortal, can say arm move and bridge be built with just thoughts and intentions and then making the physical world carry out those thoughts and intentions? Can you imagine what God can do with his thoughts and his commandments? He speaks and it happens. You think and your arm goes up. You command and your arm goes up and down. God commands and universes are created. Suns come into being. Worlds are formed. God commands and the dead are raised. That is what he is going to do for us, brothers and sisters. He will command with his voice, and you will live again, imperishable, glorious, powerful, and best of all, completely Holy Spirit saturated in all of your being, desire, and activity. This is what is coming to us because he speaks and it happens.